Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Today is a very momentous occasion for a number of reasons. First of all, I know that it's a great honor and a privilege for the 2013 Wurtfest to host Athel Fugard at this year's festival. With this um, ceremony we had this morning, with a reading that we had this morning, and the radio thing, and this as well, the Wurtfest uh, wanted to kind of salute Athel for his contribution to theatre over the past 50 years. Uh, it's also an important opportunity for Athel himself as he has developed quite a fondness for Stellenbosch. He's been here for the past two years, every year for three months as a fellow of Stias, and he really feels quite at home in Stellenbosch. Also, <laughs> he, he won't really like it if I say this, but he's got roughly 30 honorary doctorates from around the world, and he always tells me that the one he was waiting for, most of all, was Stellenbosch University, which he did get a few years ago. <laughs> all right. So, just a bit of background to today's conversation. Um, in 1957, a 17-year-old boy pulled up the curtain on Athel's first play, No Good Friday, in the Brook Theatre in Johannesburg. Now, that 17-year-old boy was Manny Menem, sitting in the blue shirt there. <laughs> so, for the past 50 years, uh, the two of them have worked together. Manny has, in the meantime, done a lot for South African theatre. He was the co-founder of the Market Theatre with Barney Sivan. He was also the managing director of the Market for 20 years, the CEO of the Baxter Theatre for 10 years, and he was also the managing director of the Fugard Theatre for one year, the first year of its opening. So I would like to just further say that on occasion I've had the privilege of sitting with these two men and just listening to them, and I've often felt the researcher in me has wanted to take out my dictaphone and just put it on the table. Because it seems to me like when they talk, it's 50 years of theatre just condensed into a conversation. And thus the idea was born to put them both on stage together to commemorate this occasion. Uh, just one more word. Manny was also the producer of most of Athol's South African premieres and has lighted every one of his South African performances. He's also a lighting designer. And so it happened that earlier this year we opened the Dilaste Karikigraf at the Fugard Theatre. And Manny was also co-producer of that and the lighting designer. And I'd like to start today's conversation by sort of throwing a curveball at them. And that's that when we did the auditions for the Karikigraf in the Fugard Theatre, Ethel sat down afterwards and he said, okay, this is what I want. I want Rian Fisman to be Pinkies and I want Ephraim Gordon to be Oki. Those were the two roles we were auditioning for that day. And after that he turned to Manny and said, what do you think, Manny? And no one else in the room, not the co-writer, not the Fugard Theatre, no one else got a say. Many did, and I'd like to know, Ethel, why. Thank you very much. <laughs> <clears throat> well, I suppose basically, Manny, I was waiting for you to, for once to disagree with me. <laughs> and, you know, I was, I was looking forward to a fight, man. You've never really given me that. How did you, would you, did you agree with my auditions that day? Did you agree with the actors I chose for those two particular roles? No, absolutely. But uh, I also remember one almost fight that we had. Really? When was that? I'll tell you when it was, because it stayed in my mind, because it was, I could see my life passing before me. It was, uh, it was Playland. And it was the set for Playland, was Susan Hilferty designed it. Oh my God, and we nearly bankrupted you, didn't we, well, Manny? Well, that's the thing. As the, as the 
chap who was running the market theater, and I used to say, well, we get, get an Ethel Fugard play. It usually got two or three actors in it. This one had two, I knew that. And it had one set, so I thought, well, that's, you know, usually it's just an open stage and maybe a cloth or maybe a flat or something. And then Susan very proudly arrived uh, on the, the, the week before the rehearsal started, and she presented me with this set, which filled the whole market theater stage. It was massive. It was, it was a combination of a roller coaster and a fairground all in one. I'm sure you remember it because it was a very beautiful set in the end. And uh, I took it to you and I was praying that you'd say something that you said to me the first time we ever met in a theater, other than when I was pulling the curtain up, was when um, I was running pack drama with Francois Swart and we brought up People Are Living There from Cape Town. It's done by KPAB down here and uh, you and Yvonne Bryslin and Ken Leach and Gillian Garlic came to the Alexander Theatre in Joburg and we put up the set. I'm tracking off here, but it'll have a point at the end. And we put up the set and you came in with the set. It was like a Sunday evening. We spent the whole Sunday putting the set up. And you went and I remember you sat in the rear part of the theatre and you did something that was totally illegal, straight off of course, which is you sat on the back of the chair and you put your feet on the seat of the chair. And you looked at the stage and you didn't say anything. And I was standing with the production manager in the corner and I said, what did we do? If we got the set too far to the left, to the right, to the front, to the back, what did we do wrong? Because he's not saying anything, he's just looking there. And then after five or ten minutes, you kind of harumphed, as is your wont, and you walked past me and you said, has anybody got a hammer? <laughs> and you went backstage and all I heard was this hell of a noise of banging and crashing and pulling and punching. And you took down a whole back section of the set, which uh, it was a set by Keith Anderson. And there was this Hillbrow kitchen in the front and there was a Hillbrow skyline behind it. And you didn't like the skyline, you just wanted the, in fact, you didn't want anything behind it, just wanted the set. And then you came back out to the front, and now we all, we're just getting to know this Athel Fugard guy. He comes and sits in the front and he said, much better, much better, too much scenery. I hate too much scenery. So it was that guy that I was hoping would appear when I showed you this vast, panorama of scenery that had been designed for uh, Playland in the market theatre. And you looked at the set and you said, well, I think that's very nice. I said, oh, Ethel, you know, that's, that's big. I don't know if we can even get time to finish it in time before the opening. And you, you looked at me and you said, well, do you want the play or don't you? There was an obvious answer, so I said, no, I want the play. She said, okay, well, then you've got the set. And <laughs> so we had to build the set. I mean, there's a, there's a wonderful thing that goes on from that, which is that then, so there was me in the market theater trying to put all our pennies together to build this wonderful thing. And it was a beautiful set, and it worked very well for the play. But then we were invited to London to the Donmar <laughs> Warehouse. And uh, the Donmar Warehouse just doesn't have the space. It's a very tiny 
stage and it's got the audience on three sides and one sort of back wall and every, every inch of the theatre is used between the audience and the stage. And so the challenge for Susan was to create a set that had all the, the dynamics of the thing that she'd created in the market and we took on tour in South Africa. And she came up with a corrugated iron with a bull's eye in it. Do you remember that? Yes, was very clearly. It was absolutely extraordinary, brilliant. But she did it in this one piece of corrugated iron. And I, uh, I kept telling the, the director of the Don Mawaiyas, you're so lucky that you didn't have the set that I had. <laughs> and then, I mean, the story goes on. We were then invited to Australia and New Zealand with this same play, same production. And now we had to tour. We were in various festivals and uh, Wesley France was our stage manager and John Carney and, and Sean Taylor were the actors. And she had to come up with a, a set that could tour because you can't tour with corrugated iron when you're going to be playing in Sydney on Saturday night and in Wellington on Tuesday night, you know. Uh, I'm sure the Bulls and the Stormers will tell you something about that little journey. <laughs> and she came up with a set that was a cloth. Remember? A cloth. A cloth. And it was made out of a particular material that could fold up and it went into Wesley Francis' suitcase. I still remember. Still with room to, for him to put his jeans and his <laughs> underpants and what have you. And so we started with this mile of wood and scenery and nails and things that turned and lights that went and we ended up with a piece of material that could fold up and go into a suitcase. I, I don't know what I'm trying to say. What I'm saying is that a good designer can solve all problems, I suppose. And a good director, in combination with a good designer, can, can make great theatre. So, here you okay. go. Okay. <laughs> so, is... Uh, that, that hot, you know, that moment when uh, Susan showed, well, you showed me Susan's set, was hardly, as you describe it, a fight between us. Oh. Would you, I mean... Well, I knew that if I was going to win, I had to fight. And, and I didn't know that I would win the fight. So, <laughs> <laughs> so okay. I just took, I took the easier, you know, the, the yeah. road, easier travel there, I suppose. But you know, when I was thinking about that audition, that uh, Paula mentioned now for the Karki Um I think the important thing was and she said she asked me why did you just turn to Manny there were also in that theatre watching the auditions there was Daniel Galloway marvellous Daniel Galloway who runs the Fugard Theatre now and there was Adriana Stein who you know worked on the play together with me and you didn't look to them, you just looked to Manny. And it was a good question and it made me think, because it was a complete knee-jerk uh, reaction on my side. And I realized what it was about, uh, trust. I think I really trust you. Do you trust me? <laughs> With a glass of wine in my hand? Yes, very much, very much. I mean, this morning again, you reminded me of something that happened to us many years ago on a tour of, um, it was, it was Valley Song, and we were in Singapore. Do you remember that? Yeah, I can remember and Singapore, was, yes. Raffles Hotel. Raffles Hotel, and in the Raffles Theatre. It was an absolutely extraordinary place, and 
beautiful. I remember each chair was a was a beautiful armchair. Chair, that's yeah. right. Great stage, good equipment, and so on. And we were under the impression this was our first time in Singapore, and we didn't understand about how much English was understood in Singapore. So Athol's always had a thing about being very respectful of the audience. So we determined, and this was really Athol's determined, uh, before the show that we would go at a pace so that everyone could make sure that you know they were all getting the play. So Athol started off the Valley Song, which is a 90-minute play, and I thought we were going to be there for three hours <laughs> because he was making sure everyone... But then we got to the first joke and the audience laughed. And he realized, wait a bit, they're understanding. They know what I'm talking about. So he went a little faster and a little faster. And by the end of the play, we understood that English, it's, it's, a, it's a country in which English is taught in every school. And uh, we were greatly relieved to know that for the rest of the run, we didn't have to go slowly. Do you remember yeah, yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. The reason is this morning, Athol was saying, well, I've got a very short story. So I'm going to read it very slowly. <laughs> Which he didn't in the end. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna throw you some of my little thoughts here. Last last night you were at the opening uh, of the current production of Master Harold and the Boys, and a couple of things came into my mind, um, being there and being aware that you were all in the audience, and that is there was a time, not too long ago. So let's go 10 years ago and back from there, when you know wild horses couldn't get you into a theater to see a production of one of your previous plays. But I've noticed in recent times that you quite enjoy going to see other people now doing their versions of your older work. Have you thought about that? Why, why, why is that? What's well, happening? There's one important uh, fact about being in the audience for um, Master Harold. Was it last night, was it? it was last, uh, last night. One important fact is that the man who directed that, Kim Kerfoot, had also directed statements after an arrest under the Immorality Act, the play that started off in a little church hall somewhere in Woodstock, or I don't forget yes, where it was. And then because it was so successful, you know, or, well, in my opinion, Kim's production of Statements After an Arrest Under the Morality Act eclipsed every other production of that play that I've seen. You know, and that was heartwarming for me, wonderful to think that in South Africa I'd encountered such a perfect understanding of the play, superbly handled by three wonderful actors, and I think it is the fact that Kim Kerfoot also directed Master Harold and the Boys that I had a, I, I just instinctively had confidence in his choices as a director. Plus the fact that I had, you know, because I'd forged a, a, a warm friendship with him after statements, uh, I also felt that I, I trusted him. And he allowed me to sit in on one or two rehearsals 
and I watched. The, I hadn't seen the young, the young Halley, the young man who plays Halley. I didn't see him at work, but I saw the two magnificent actors who play Sam and Willie. What are their names again, Manny? You got them. Oh, I can't. The, it was uh, Chimana Sebi and Willie Malloy was a new person to me. Yeah, yeah. I hadn't seen him before. Okay. He's a, a recent graduate of UCT. Oh, a recent graduate yeah. of UCT? Yes, yes. Oh, I see. Okay. Anyway, I'd seen him work with those two. And, you know, they've been some sort of abortive attempts to do this play, Master Harold and the Boys. I, I dissociated myself with the film of it that was made recently, simply because, you, you know, people come to this country, and this is what was so great about the film of Tsotsi, that, you know, the, the film that went on to win its, uh, an Oscar, was that it was made here in South Africa. No imports, and as much as I love uh, Danny Glover, for, you know, who I've worked with many times, when it came to Busman and Lena, the film, there was Danny Glover with Angela Bassett, another marvelous American actress, but trying to do what our own actors, our own people, can do infinitely better in every way than any imports can ever get it, you know, you'll never get it right. And watching both statements, firstly, and then watching the rehearsals of of um, Master Harold and the Boys, and watching those two actors, I just thought to myself, my God, you know, I don't think I will ever again allow a play uh, or a film of my work to be done that is not cast, directed by, and designed by South African talents. Yay! <laughs> wow. I think we're all all joined together in saying work, work to that lot. But listen, Absolutely. are you going to ask all the questions, Benny, or do I get a chance? Well, you've got two pieces of paper there. No, I've got three pieces of paper. <laughs> okay, <laughs> because I've got some questions for you, but I mean, I'll I'll okay. let you have a little bit of time. Okay, okay, all right. I'll, I'll just I'll sort of throw in one about again my relationship with you. One one of my early memories with you. One of my uh, I'll talk about a couple of them, but uh, so I was running Pack Drama with Francois Swart, and you were this uh, sort of Cape playwright. You would, you'd done a number of things for KPAB at the time. You were living in Port Elizabeth, and I was trying to get sort of to, if you like, to buy you. I was trying to find a way to get your next play. And if you remember that, and can I you saying, remember what that play was? Or no, I, no, no, I didn't know what you were going to write. I just wanted to get the next Atle Fugard play for Pact, so we could present the world premiere in the Transvaal in those days. And uh, you, you listened to me, you know, like you're sitting now with your pipe and your glass of wine, and you, <laughs> you used to listen to me and say, "Oh well, I don't like to work like that. When I'm when I'm ready, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens." But that wasn't good enough for me, so I had to find out. I said, no, no, I'll commission you, because then I had, I had the pact millions, as Quibus will know, and uh, I could say, no, well, Ethel, I'll commission you. I'll give you some money, and it'll look after you while you're writing the play. But you, you didn't want to listen to me. So in the end, I had to find a way, and I made a friendly gesture. By the time I'd also had a couple of glasses of the same 
bottle of Tassies that we used to pour over our shoulders. And I then said, okay, I'm going to give you a rand. In those days, the rand was a note. And I said, here is my rand. This is my, your promise to me that you'll give me your next play. Don't if you remember that. I can certainly remember that. And then I went back to Pretoria and I was very happy in my heart of hearts. I said, well, we've got Athol's next play. He's going to come. made him promise he's going to give it to me. And then after a couple of months, an envelope with my name in a, a handwriting that I was beginning to know uh, arrived on my desk. And in the envelope was this crumpled one rand note. <laughs> and in next to the note was just one little, you wrote on a small piece of paper, and all it said was, I can't take the pressure. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> so that taught me that you can't, you can't buy this guy. You just have to keep ready. You just have to... Uh, Peter Brooks said something wonderful once that I, I'll never forget and I use it often and I'm going to use it now, which is that you can't pick the apple from the tree. You have to be ready. When it's ripe, if you're there and if you're ready, it'll fall from the tree and you'll catch it and it'll be perfectly timed for you to be able to eat that apple. So in a way, that's been an image for me with you was be ready because you don't know when it's gonna when it's gonna come out of the air, but when it comes, be ready so that you can get it and then help it in in its way into the world, if you like. Okay, okay. can, can okay. I? Because okay. I, I want to take up on this question of our sort of uh, understanding of each other and waiting for each other. It's something that I never actually, I think, ever got you to talk to me about or to and I'd love to do it now <coughs> there was no it's non-threatening and there's no one rand note involved there's it's just very simple question Manny you're going to have to start off by explaining something to our audience today because I can't believe anybody sitting here would have seen what I'm talking about Orestes Firstly, what was it? What did you see? And why did you take it under your wing? Because he did. I will tell you how it was set up. I had done... Uh, it was again during the days of state-sponsored theatre in this country. And in this case, the theatre was KPAB. Cape Arts Performing Whatever. And um, I had done... Uh, people are living there with him, which was a very, very considerable success. And then Busman and Liana, which was also a very considerable success. And, 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 and Ed, uh, Curtis, Peter Curtis, was the artistic director. And he came to me after, his, uh, uh, after at some point or the other, and he said, listen, he said, we're forging such a marvelous relationship. <clears throat> We'd like to sort of... If you do anything you'd like to do. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? Anything, he said. Anything, 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 anything. And I said, um, I'd like to work with four actors. No, three actors. I already knew who they were. 
and I went to work with them and the end product of that sort of very private and very uh, very very delicate experiment in terms of working with actors you see what I've always believed in is that actors are not simply their creative talent is not simply in terms of interpreter they're not in simply interpretive artists actors can be inordinately creative in the very first instance provided you tap into them provided you give them the space the respect that they need because actors are very insecure they like to have words on paper but if you handle them properly you can actually oh you can garden some incredible flowers from them and i've always believed in that i have no conceits in myself as a director i think of myself very much in the same way that socrates felt of himself uh, in terms of his so-called philosophy um which was a midwife to the truth i don't know in every rehearsal room i've been in and it was magnificently there in my experience with the actors in the scarecy play they i just help them deliver what was innately there inside them and particularly as for the uh, for, for all of those actors there were five young brown africaners and then the marvelous erica vessels and ivan fredericks was a senior member of the the the, the group that I, that we auditioned for erica was cast before i even did the play um or, or started rehearsals or anything like that or auditions and um and in that rehearsal room they trusted me it's all based on trust isn't it many it's all based on trust they trusted me i don't know i uh, you know i didn't work at it i just it just happened and as a result you know i feel that their names deserve to be on the title page of that play if ever it sees itself in print or if ever it's done again and there's a poster i think those five names those six names because erica was there as well those six names should be on that page as well as co-authors as it were of the play i mean that's the sort of relationship i forged with ivan bryceland in doing those early plays of mine and particularly in working on statements after an arrest under the immorality act that was the way i eventually was able to deliver something called siswe bonzi's dead and the island is because with john carney and winston and chorna that sort of relationship and that preparedness on my side to see themselves as authentic creators not just interpretive artists but creative artists in their own right that those plays came about i must admit that now when it comes to the writing of a play i'm too I, i'm too tired to take on the the whole holy but now i want to just be private with paper bottle of ink and my fountain pen and a computer standing nearby just to deal with it when i've written the play but orestes is the thing that came out of that invitation from kpab to do something what was it many Well, what did you see? Okay, I again I heard you were cooking up something down in Cape Town again. I was thinking, damn it, there he's going doing something else again down in the Cape and I'm here in the Transvaal. So I had to get down there and see what was going on. It was in the Greenpoint Arts Center, I think. 
up on the first floor. That's correct. And uh, Brian Asbury, Yvonne, uh, Yvonne Bryceland's husband, who was a brilliant photographer of theatre work in those days, had photographed the rehearsal process and the photographs were played as we arrived and as we left the this, this space and, and helped one to get into the, the, what was actually going to happen in the space. It was unlike anything I'd ever seen. Uh, it was an extraordinary event. We sat in a circle. The play started with Wilson Dunster pushing a matchbox on his thigh until the match, in, we all, just as happens in a room, when one is moving and everybody else isn't, the whole focus of the room went to that matchbox until the matchbox fell on the ground. And then the play started. We were all focused and, uh, as my wife would say, we had all arrived. We were all in the same place at the same time, witnessing the same thing. And it, it was... It was a response to, reaction out of, and unfolding of and unpacking of the, the Harris Station bombing that had happened a few years earlier in Johannesburg. And it, Athel hadn't sat at his desk and penned this. The, the whole thing was evolved with the cast in the rehearsal room. And I knew that I was in the presence I'll be honest with you, I didn't totally understand what was going on all the time, by any means. But I knew that I was in the presence of something, you know, just totally extraordinary. Something completely watchable and completely dramatic and completely sort of engulfed me. I just, I was just absolutely transported. It kept me awake for days afterwards thinking about it. And I know that I stumbled over myself with you and the, the three actors afterwards, Val Donald Bell, uh, Wilson and Yvonne Bryceland, and saying, please, I'd like you to come to the north. And I think you'd had two or three exposures in Cape Town. And what I promised you, and the one thing I could offer you, was that we would give it more exposure. You wanted your work to be seen, and I, I then went to work to organize a season in uh, Johannesburg where we played in the rehearsal room in Queen's Hall to start with. And uh, uh, amongst other people who came to see it there, and I'll never forget her response, was Margot Fontaine. I don't know if you remember that. Yes, Certainly Ballet Dancer Supreme was in town and had come to see the play. And we also played in one of the places that has a place in your and my uh, formative years, if you like, which is in Dorkay House. We then went to Dorkay House and performed it on the second or third floor, um, where the back door is the, the air conditioning. And you open the door when there's a noisy part, <laughs> and you close the door when there's a quiet part. And we played it there, obviously, uh, to many more black people than would come to the Queen's Hall. And we also played it in the rehearsal room at the Breitenbach Theatre so that people in Pretoria could have access to this piece as well. Um, out of that, one of my favourite memories was in the, in the piece there was a, a quite incredible scene. It, it's, it's almost hard, it's almost impossible to describe unless you were in the room. 
where it, it so I've said it's about the Harris and in response to the Harris thing, but there was also, as Athol often does, there was a, one of the Greek myths, legends sown through it, which was uh, Clytemnestra and Agamemnon. And Yvonne Bryceland as Clytemnestra took on a chair as Agamemnon. And she she dismembers this chair. She, she, she killed this chair every night. The chair ended up in pieces of wood and whatever was in the, in the seat of the chair and so was just lying on the floor. And very often, for sometimes up to half an hour longer after the performance, people would pick through the remains of this chair trying to trying to process what they'd witnessed during the performance. And one of my enduring memories of, of Athol was we used to go down the old Commissioner Street in Joburg, which was the old uh, furniture town, furniture part of town, all the old furniture most shops were, and Athol would always be looking for the chair. So every day we had another chair, because he destroyed a chair every night. And he used to try and find the chair that she couldn't break. <laughs> it was well, a I, real fight. Well, I, I remember that, uh, that, that, that it was so exciting because, I mean, you have no idea of what it must be like to work with an actress of such formidable courage as Bryceland had. And the, again, that magical word which theatre is all about, trust. And it's because the trust that we forged between the two of us uh, was so strong and great. I could get Yvonne, and I had to be very careful because there's always a temptation when somebody trusts you like that. You're placed in a position of power and the temptation to play games, or to put it very crudely, and I hope I don't offend too many people in the audience, to mind fuck that, that particular artist. Is, you know, and I was always very careful about that. <clears throat> but I can remember saying to Yvonne, because the chair, you see, had to represent Agamemnon, the king, the man she'd married, who had fathered her children. And my first instruction to Yvonne, as once I decided that that was the way to go, as I would say, sit in that chair, and just love it for the way it supports you. Feel that strong back behind yours which allows you to lean back. Rest your arms on it. Just curl up in it, in, almost in a fetal position. You know, just fall in love with that chair. And I said, now you've got to start, you love it. Now you've got to start to hate it. And I want you to now s explore that chair and try to find the one little weak moment, the one little weak joint, the one little weak part of it that you can go to work on and use to finally take on the total destruction. I said, because by the end of this experience, I want that chair to be in so many pieces that not even God could put it together again. And she literally did that. 
She literally did that, and it was a question of sitting in a new chair every night. She never knew what it was going to be like until she came out into the space. And uh, then just move your body to try and, you, you know, get, try and make that chair squeak. One little leg is not as securely fixed as the others. Just find that moment of, that point of weakness. And then using that, and you know, sometimes it was the leg, sometimes it was an armrest, sometimes it was the back, but she would tear it apart, she would tear it apart having found it, and then use that to demolish the rest, and I must admit it was, it was a chilling, chilling, chilling experience to watch her do that. Okay. No, and I must just add also, because... Yvonne was a great lover of beautiful things. She loved... So, it was almost a violation of her nature, as it would be of anybody who kills another human being or destroys another human being. It's a violation of your essential nature to do that. But that only adds to the, to the, the ugliness of it, the beautiful ugliness of it. And so, yeah, that's all. Over to you, Manny. <laughs> I've got a couple more sort of then and now things I, wa I wanted to ask you about. I can remember one night we were at Skunmarkerskop and it got to sort of one o'clock in the morning or something. And you said, okay, we must take the dog for a walk. So out we went. And we, on the way to where we were going to walk on the rocks near the sea, we had to cross the road. And... When we got to the road, we could hear the sound of a car from far away coming along. We said, wait a bit, and then waited. Finally, the car passed us off into the distance on the way to back to Port Elizabeth, in fact. And you took one look at the car, and then you looked at me and you said, traffic, I have to move. <laughs> and lo and behold, within the next couple of months you'd move to Lovemore Park to the house the you called ashram, the ashram. Yeah. yeah and I mean now you spent the last half of the last year in New York then you've come to Stellenbosch and then you've been in Cape Town now you're back in Stellenbosch so what's the what's the change now you you you're liking being with people you're liking the traffic now no no, no um no, I, I think I will, if I, I don't know how many, much more time I've got left, but certainly in the time that's left to me, I'm going to look back on my 80th year as most probably the biggest mistake of my life. You know, I should never have reached it. But because, I mean, everybody, you know, well-meaning folk wanted to celebrate it. And it brought so much noise into my life, Manny, that... You know, and um, the Kariki Graf was on the stage, and I am now going to disappear into the mists. I'm going back to New Bethesda shortly. Paul and I will be going there. And, um, and I think a long period of silence. I'm not going to stop working. I, I couldn't stop working. I... I wouldn't know what to do with my life if I didn't have a fountain pen and a bottle of ink and blank paper. But I certainly will go on working, but, um, wow, 
It's going to be hard to reach me. <laughs> no, I have not fallen in love with traffic. Okay, not at all. Good, good. Um, about that, that writing, I don't know if you still do it because I haven't seen your, your pages recently. Um, you used to write with an ink that was the color of dried blood. Do you remember that? I don't yeah, know what that... Unfortunately, the... you know, I, I, I got that ink out of using a berry together with a standing ink that I bought in a shop and then I, I worked on the color of it with a berry ah. that grows wild in Schoenmarker's Corp. And um, the berry has gone, as most things in our nature are going, at an alarming rate. Uh, and the, the the company that made that manufactured that ink has gone into liquidation. So, but I still use ink, but now it's just a question of black ink on white paper. Okay. Which isn't to say I don't bleed anymore, Manny. <laughs> when I write a play, it's, that still happens. Will you write another play in Afrikaans? Well, you know, <clears throat> this morning I I had a very happy experience. I was able to read, uh, I, I can't describe it even as a short story, a little sketch that came to me out of, a, out of an incident, an encounter uh, here in Stellenbosch. So I wrote uh, my sketch uh, in terms, you know, to, as a contribution to Wordfears. And um, what I, as I was developing it and writing it, I stumbled on a few little facts and thoughts that made me realize that actually it, it is potentially, that little sketch that I read this morning, is potentially the germ of something bigger. Whether that would turn out to be a prose work, because I also now, you know, at, at this point in my life, you know, I've been writing plays for 50 years. And um, the play is a very specific, specific genre in terms of writing. It's, it's dialogue, it's spoken language, which I love, of course. I, I love what happens to, to language in people's mouths and how we use language to struggle sometimes to tell the truth. And now we struggle just as hard sometimes to hide the truth. And that f fascination with language has always been with me. But, you know, way back at the beginning of it all, at a time when the blood knot, which I regard as my watershed play, at the time that the blood knot was taking shape in my head and on paper, there was something else happening called Tsotsi, which was a prose work. And uh, what I realized that there was a point in my life, I know I'm a man for very radical choices. I, 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 it's either or for me. I very seldom accommodate too many things at the same time. And what I realize now is that there was a, a fork in the road for me at that point in my life, whether to concentrate on prose or to go with theater, the spoken dialogue. And uh, I chose theatre. But you know, interestingly enough, and I was listening to Henny Ockham this morning, talking about how, how he loves and how he uses his notebooks 
to sort of extend his life, to stay in touch with reality. And I'm an addictive notebook keeper as well. He talks about 27 notebooks. I think I've got about 55, all told. And um, so prose has always quietly been there in my life. And I think maybe a criticism that could be made of some of my plays is that they become a little bit prosy at times, especially when I give an actor the chance to launch into a big aria, you know, like <laughs> Miss Helen in The Road to Mecca or something like that. But um, so that has always been there. And the temptation at this moment, and I am I'm the most easily tempted man in the world. I am handing myself over to that temptation. And the first thing I'm going to be dealing with, Manny, as I disappear in the mists, will be a prose work. But it will be in English. But So your question, is there a possibility of another work in some form or the other in Afrikaans? Yeah, this month, look. Great. Now, well, the other question was, uh, what you know, Torti was a, was a very, very special novel. Will there be another novel? And I think you've, you've answered that, so. Bigger pardon? Uh, whether you would write another novel, and I think you're saying, if it if it presents yes. itself, well, you, could you see, find I, I I I have got, I've got such a strong, strong, um, motivation for this thing that I want to write, and also, just again by way of happy accidents, I've got the perfect form for it, and you know I'm a dictator when it you know some writers talk about oh but the character ran away from me and I just you know he just had a life of his own I never allow that to happen <laughs> never I if I'm going to write something you do what I want you to do and <laughs> that certainly is the, nobody's ever run away with me and um, and in the case of this this thing I want to write it's it's like that I I've got the form I've got the structure and it's, I'm very, very much, um, maybe to my detriment as a writer, maybe the one thing that most probably um, the criticism, which I will accept, a valid criticism that could be leveled at my work, is that it's so structured. You know, it's like, I've often likened my plays, in fact, and I've said, you know, theatre is this miraculous shared experience we have. And the only other medium that has it is, is music as well. And by theatre I also mean dance, I mean opera and all, all those other forms. You know, at eight o'clock, the curtain goes up in the theatre and in the concert hall, the conductor raises his baton. Ninety minutes later, you've come to the end of one of of uh, Bruckner's endless symphonies, <laughs> you know, and in the theatre, the curtain has come down on the last Karkichrov, you know. That's, that's, it's, it's like a little toy you wind up. You wind it up and you put it down on the table and it runs around and does a somersault and it runs around and does another somersault and eventually the little spring runs, you know, runs out and it ends. And the play's like that. It's a structure. It's a structured mechanism. I the word I love in terms of play writing plays is play writing. 
P-L-A-Y-W-R-I-G-H-T. Playwright, maker of. It's a craft. And the one thing that always bothers me about a lot of the young writing I see today is that it's it, the fact that it's a craft, that it's got to be, there are tools you've got to learn to handle in exactly the same way as I said this morning. As a carpenter makes a good table, a playwright must make a good play. Okay, there you go. Good. Uh, gentlemen, I'm afraid it might be my turn to interrupt you. Uh, it's been a wonderful sort of 50 minutes of, of words. Um, I was just wondering if I could perhaps close with a question. Um, I've just got some logistics to discuss, first of all, which is just that there's wine available again, and it will be on the stoop, so it's just a bit further through the Platon Café. And then also um, I've been instructed to say that Ethel's books are for sale in the, in the book place. Melt is making signs that way. And Ethel will also be available to sign some of the books. Um, the last thing I just want to leave with both of you is that one of the most interesting things about getting to know the two of you has been your passion for cricket. <laughs> now, I've, I've grown up with sort of a dichotomy between sort of sport and culture, which is entirely false, of course. And I just wanted to know if, if you could perhaps tell me, Ethel, why cricket? Is there anything of it that, that you can hook onto the rest of your life? And why Amla? <laughs> well, uh, well, not even Amla helped us with the last T20. I mean, which, you know, Pakistan really cleaned us up. But, you know, um, cricket's like a good game of chess. I mean, the number of factors that come into play, you know, you look at the pitch, you look at the sky, you look at the weather forecasts, you look at the opposition, you know, it's, 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 it's a mind game as much as it is a physical sport. And Amla... God, it's nice to see a man with a big black beard there on the, on the cricket pitch. I don't know. What about you, Manny? No, I agree. I agree. We'll look forward to the next series that starts on it, Sunday. That's right. The one-day series. That's right. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you very much, the two of you. Uh, I think everyone maybe knows what I mean when I said at the beginning how just when the two of them start talking about the, the good old days or the present, you know, good days, uh, it's quite magical. So thank you very much and... Um, have a safe drive in the rain. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Manny. That was a good one, wasn't it? <laughs>